Welcome to the Punk Rock MBA podcast. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock MBA podcast. Today's guest is a good friend of mine, Dan Suraf. You may not know his name, but you do know some of the artists he works with as a couple examples. Black Veil Brides and Zach Wild. Zach Wild, obviously the legendary guitarist for Ozzy Osbourne and Black Label Society. Dan's been working with them for quite a while. He also used to work at Sumerian. So he's been in the industry in one way or another for, I don't know, maybe about 10 years or so now, which is about how long I've known him. Super smart guy who's kind of helped me understand a lot of things about the industry. And that's why I wanted to have him on the show to just kind of unpack how the whole thing works at a high level as far as who pays who and who's responsible for what. Like, what do managers do? What do booking agents do? Does the band pay them? Do they pay the band? How much do bands make from shows versus merch versus licensing versus all these other things? So if you ever had any questions about that, about kind of how the money changes hands behind the scenes, then you will like this conversation. Before I get into the episode, there are a few things that you can do to support the show. If you like us, number one, if you share it on social media, that really helps us a lot. Whether that is Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, we don't care. Share it on there, tag me, tag the guest, tag Deanna. That really helps us a lot because the platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts don't really do a lot to market the shows. So we rely on you guys to help spread the word. Thing number two is you can buy some merch if you really like us. There's a link to that in the show notes. Thing number three that you can do if you really, really, really like us is you can support us on Patreon. Patrons get a number of benefits that I think are pretty cool. For example, you get every show a week early. There is an opportunity to have me review your band or YouTube channel or podcast or any other creative project that you want to send my way. So if you are interested in that, hit the link in the show notes. And with that out of the way, let's get into the episode. Dan Surf, happy Friday. Happy Friday. So I don't know exactly when this is going to come out, but for everybody listening, uh, we're recording this in the middle of coronavirus lockdown where everyone's working from home and trying to figure out what to do. And I would imagine this is probably especially stressful for folks like you who work with artists that spend a lot of their time on the road and do a lot of business that way. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, uh, not much you can do. Every tour is canceled for the foreseeable future. Manufacturing closed. Right. It's an interesting time. Yeah. Well, everyone else has talked about that stuff to death, and who knows where we'll be on that stuff by the time anybody hears this. So I thought maybe when we talk here, we could kind of just zoom out a little bit. And, you know, I get a lot of questions about how artists make money, and I have a, you know, decent understanding of that, but not like you do. So I just kind of wanted to walk through that and get your take on this, you know, with the understanding that this is different for, you know, every artist and, you know, this is just one person's perspective, but I thought that could be helpful for people. And I guess before we do that, who do you work with? What do you do? Like tell, tell everyone your life story in a couple, a couple minutes. So I'm the vice president of artist management and digital strategy at brand management. We represent Blackfield Brides, Sack Wild, Black Label Society, and High on Fire, just to name a few. And the Dimebag Daryl Estate as of recently. That's right. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Thank you. So those are just a few of our clients. And kind of what we're known for is building these secondary non-music businesses around our clients. Like with Zach Wild, we've got the coffee company and we've got Wild Audio. Got it. So a lot of the stuff that I talked about in the periphery video that I uh, that I did earlier this week. Absolutely. 
Cool. Well, I guess the the first one, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about touring and how big of a percentage of a typical artist's income. Like, tell me about how that works out for various different kinds of bands. Touring is very different for bands, depending on what kind of caliber they're working on. You know, if someone's playing to a 500 cap room, it's not going to be the same as somebody that's playing to, you know, 20,000 people. But yeah, touring for most bands, uh, especially bands that are not very well diversified, is the overwhelming vast majority of their income, whether that's the actual guarantee of playing that show or it comes from tour merch, VIP, which is a very lucrative business for a lot of musicians, you know, their gear sponsorships, things like that. But it all revolves around getting up on stage and playing in front of people. So, I mean, I would think the vast majority of bands rely way too heavily on the live performance aspect. And like you hit on in the periphery video, even without, you know, the COVID-19, somebody breaks a finger and you have to cancel a tour. Nobody in the band's getting paid while that, while they can't play. And if they're not getting paid, you're not getting paid. I'm not getting paid. The booking agent's not getting paid. Publicist probably isn't getting paid. The record label's not. Tour manager. You know, no, nobody connected to the band is making any money. So it really ripples out when something like that happens. Right. And there's I mean, there's dozens of people that work on any tour, any music release. And then you just don't think about it all the way down to like the janitor at the record label, which, you know, the, the, the truck driver, the people in the warehouse fulfilling orders, the people at Ticketmaster that are, you know, handling customer service. Yeah. I mean, a friend of mine is an engineer at Ticketmaster and, you know, he's relatively new there. So it's a little nerve wracking for him. Exactly. It's, it, it's far greater than just the people on stage. Right. They're just the top of the funnel. Right. Well, they're the ones that people see and that's really what they think about, but each band has, you know, a support staff of, you know, 10, 20, 30 people that work directly for them that make that tour possible. They make it possible for them to get up on stage and play every night. Cuz we're a bunch of bottom feeders that just <laughs> make our <laughs> living on their backs of their work. But it's kind of true. Eh, you know what? It's a, it it takes a team to make it happen. Yeah. You know, I, I I don't know a lot of bands that can drive their own bus or that can make their own insurance. That's true. That can underwrite their own credit line or SBA loans. Right, right. So uh, SBA loans, that's interesting. Who who? Well, I guess you, you don't want to name <laughs> names, but is that actually a thing that some bands do? Yeah, of course. It's not normal for every band, but yes, there's, there's certain caliber bands that need that kind of quick funding that are able to get in and able to pay it back. But that's a that's that's a topic for a different day. That's probably not applicable to the majority <laughs> of people listening to this. Yeah, but it, it does go to the point of, you know, sometimes people ask me what percentage of a band's income comes from X or Y, and it just kind of goes to the answer of it, it depends. Yeah, there, there's no one clear answer. Every band is different in how they operate. I mean, you know, there, there's some bands that don't even need credit because they're just that they, they have months and months of operating expenses and cash reserves that they never needed to tap into credit. And then there's others that will never be able to tour if they're not getting tour support from the record label in the form of a credit line. What does tour support mean? You hear that term a lot, but what does that actually mean? Quite literally, it's a line of credit that your record label gives you to be able to go on tour. There's a lot of startup costs associated with it, transportation, driver, uh, promotional materials, insurance, which is huge. (laughs) you know, trailer, guitar strings, 
there's a, a lot of costs associated with just getting to that first show. So before we play the first show, you know, we've got to come up with 20 grand or whatever the number is. Exactly. And so a lot of times, especially if you're a good seller or a good streamer, the record label will advance you this money or give you a credit line to use so you can actually play that show. I mean, in the past, touring was used as a form of promotion for an album release or a song release. You know, you put out a new single, you go on tour in support of it. And that's where the record label would make their money or hopefully make their money back. Got it. So that just kind of really goes to the idea of labels being, in a lot of ways, a bank with some services attached. Oh, I mean, totally. Uh, Especially right now in kind of the modern music industry. I can't speak to how it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago before I was involved. But, you know, in the past decade that I've been professionally involved in the music industry, yeah, record labels did take on the role of being the bank and the investor and the financier. That's the argument that's made for why they own the masters in perpetuity, because they spent, you know, not just the cost that it takes to create the album, but the you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars into the advertising and marketing and then the tour support and then the upkeep of that, you know, you have a lot of these legacy labels like, you know, Metal Blade and um, Nuclear Blast that have legendary catalogs that still work their back catalogs. Right. You know, they, they have staff that still work releases that came out 30 years ago. Right. I'm sure. I mean, like we you hear all the time, like the Black Album sold X number of copies this month and it like outsold the latest releases from, you know, every other band in metal. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah, so, you know, they have staff that actively works that stuff. So, you know, I don't think it's fair to paint record labels as the bad guys are an inc- uh, an incredibly important partner in what it takes to have a band be successful. And yeah, like when they take on the role of a bank, it's not like the evil bank. It's, you know, it's expensive to be a musician. Anybody that picks up an instrument knows how expensive it is. You're, spe- you know, guitar players are spending hundreds or thousands of dollars a year just on strings and picks. Wait, you think guitarists change their strings? You <laughs> <laughs> must be new here. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> right. Record labels acting as a bank help make it happen, um, especially since it's typically much easier to recoup with a record label than it is to pay back a high interest loan on a credit card. Right, right. So that's what tour support means is fronting you the money to get out on the road and then they got to pay that back. Right. Uh, I mean, certain bands have it written into their contract that it's maybe not recoupable. It's just part of their album advance or part of their marketing budget. But yeah, just at the very most basic level, it is money a record label gives you or loans to you to be able to go out on tour. Most bands are not going to have $20,000 in cash sitting around to start up a tour. It's incredibly expensive. Right. One particular thing I wanted to ask you about on that kind of front is tour buy-ons. Is that still as much of a thing as it used to be? And what are your thoughts on that as far as whether it's a a decent idea or not? I mean, yeah, it's still a thing. Um, I don't want to name any names, yeah. but yeah, you know, it's a, I feel like it was a really common thing, like back in the Ozfest era. Yeah. I would say back in the Ozfest era, there was a better return on investment. Mm. You know, you can pay a lot of money and open up for Aussie and, you know, 50,000 people a night will see you. Mm-hmm. That's old school. It doesn't work like that anymore. But yeah, you know, buy-ons are still a thing. There's a time and a place for it. 
I think the way bands currently use it is inappropriate because they don't there's no way for them to quantify how they're going to get anything out of it you're referring to the bands who do the buying correct i think that a lot of the uh, you know i don't want to sound like i'm talking shit it's just you know it's just the reality of the situation they they go in without a plan yeah when we're talking about bands buying onto ozfest that was a completely different thing and you Look at Ozfest gave us corn and disturbed and system of a down and Slipknot. that was not yeah without breaking a yeah. sweat right uh, like Ozzy gave us these bands it's not the same as buying onto a tour where you're playing to 200 people a night right you need to be able to have a reason for it now it makes sense when let's say you're an international band and you buy onto a similar band to be on their tour business your first time in that country. Like if I was in a band and I had the opportunity to tour Australia, I would want to buy onto like a Parkway Drive tour. Mm -hmm. That would make sense, especially if I had some hype, something to promote. But if you're buying on because there's just no opportunity to get a tour based on your own merit, the buy-on's not going to help you. Well, that was kind of my thought is like, if you have to pay to be on the tour, wouldn't that sort of suggest that it's either too early or you're doing something wrong or it just feels like an attempt to cut the line in a way that may not make sense. That's exactly it. And I think people view it as kind of like a shortcut or a hack, but that's just not the case. For the majority of bands, it's not the case. You can buy onto every tour you want, but if you don't have that kind of like street level following, that hype, that interest of people, it's, it's not going to matter. And, you know, if you if you look at previous years there's certain bands that have bought on to so many tours but never win anywhere i don't even think they're bands anymore yeah and you see I, I forget if we talked about this before but do you remember when james hetfield was really backing battlecross oh yeah and they're they were very good band great at what they do james hetfield obviously like the most legendary figure in their genre ever in thrash metal he was backing them organically. Like, I don't think they were paying him or something because I don't think he would take money for that. And even that wasn't enough to really put them over in the way that I think I, I thought it might. So Right, and if Metallica can't break a band. Yeah, and that's not talking shit on them. It's just like, I guess to your, to your point, I just I don't think there are shortcuts in the way that people want there to be. Right. Uh, there's there's certain points where or certain times when a buy on makes sense. But more often than not, the people doing the buy on are just looking for a shortcut. It's it's not in an area where it makes sense or at a time where it makes sense. And, and it's not with a band that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And especially like you see when some much smaller band or even a bigger band, when, you, when you're opening for like a real legendary band, they just want you to get the fuck off the stage <laughs> so the headliner can play. <laughs> right. I mean... <laughs> I mean, absolutely. It's uh, it's tough. But yeah, like for, mo for most bands, I wouldn't recommend it. And who would pay for that? Would that be the label or the management company or who or the band? I mean, depends. If there's hype and there's a real thing happening, I guess, okay, the best way to describe it is you had an old Punk Rock NBA article about, you know, getting, buying ads yeah. and getting press attention. Sometimes it's kind of like when you have a, a really great song to promote and you know you buy some ads for it and you see this 
great growth and it's been so many people like it you just can't get it in front of people fast enough right you see in the statistics that people love it at that point it makes sense to buy onto a tour and the record label a lot of times would pay for it in the form of tour support or maybe just you know fully paying the buy-on cost and you know adding it to your recoupment like say asking alexandria in 2009 when it was clear that they were about to blow the fuck up Exactly. They're like, yeah, you know what? At that point, it would make sense for them to, you know, buy onto whatever tour. Not saying that they did. I don't think yeah. they did at that time. But it would make sense because, yeah, it's there's just this big movement and you can't get it in front of people fast enough. Got it. That's when it makes sense. That's when the record label steps up. But if somebody just wants to buy onto a tour because they can't get a tour on their own merit, that's the band paying for it. And I mean, really probably losing money. <laughs> On it a lot. Do managers ever front money for anything? Is that a thing? Uh, I mean, that becomes a sticky situation. I guess each management company is different, so I don't. I don't know. The, the, those answers will vary, but typically, management won't front money to an artist. They'll, you know, use money to expand the operations of the management company. Just for anybody who's not clear, how do managers get paid, or management companies get paid? What is the relationship there? A real manager will get paid a percentage of whatever money they bring into an artist. So, you know, industry standard, anywhere from 10 to 20% based on when you came in. Um, every dollar that a band grosses that you are responsible for, you get paid a commission on that. So how do they decide whether you're responsible for that? <laughs> uh, well, that that's a good question. You're um, laughing because this is probably a, a, a tricky conversation. It is. I mean, look, if you're in a position like we are where, you know, we've been with the same clients for a decade, we have our hands in everything. Yeah. If you're an honest guy and keep it real, you're probably not making any money for the first year, year and a half, because it's stuff that they're, the band is doing things that were previously done by the old manager. Um, but it all, you know, it all depends. If you can come in and immediately get somebody a sync deal. Meaning like a placement in a TV commercial or something like that. Yeah, there's a, there's a, lots of opportunities to make money, and it all depends. So the, <laughs> there's really like no one right answer. It depends on when they come in with the band and what they do. But if you if you're doing a good job and you know you're bringing in revenue for the band and opening up revenue streams, there's not going to be that fight. Uh, you know, musicians understand the need for this job to get done. You know, like the band attorney, the band's accountant, they're all going to understand, and you all work together as a team. Got it. So the relationship is that you work for the band and your job is to essentially grow their business and then you get a percentage of basically whatever you kill. Yep. That's exactly it. Got it. So let's talk about merch. So my uh, experience, and I, I've run some ads and other stuff for some bands with pretty decent merch businesses. So I have an idea of how that works on the online side, but I don't know much about the tour business in regards to merch. What can you tell us about that? Well, it's it's a lot less lucrative than e-commerce. What makes you say that? Well, because you can do it in your sleep. Like you like you said in the, you know, what I I don't even remember which video it was. I think it was your Spotify video. Yeah. But it's money you can make while you sleep. If you're selling t-shirts on tour, you're paying merch rate, you have to pay your merch person, you have to pay local taxes on it. There's a lot that goes into it. The profit margin on tour merch is very small compared to e-commerce uh the difference is you can sell a greater volume so you, if you sell a shirt for 25 bucks right off the top most venues are going to take what 30 percent 
Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and like you said, you've got to pay the merch person. Oftentimes, bands have to like uh, ship stuff out in the middle of the tour, which is very expensive to get a box of shirts overnight. It is not cheap. And then there's the cost of producing the thing. So they sell that $25 shirt. They might make five bucks on it when all is said and done. Yeah, I mean, if if they're lucky. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a revenue stream. I wouldn't say it's the best. Um, you know, it's you, you make $5 here, $5 there. And then, you know, it adds up to where the band maybe makes five hundred dollars in profit a night something like that and uh, you know i'm just throwing numbers out yeah, there yeah. but yeah you know tour merch is complicated uh a lot of bands lose money touring um and that's kind of something that people outside of the music industry don't really know about but it is very easy for a band to lose ten thousand twenty thousand dollars on a tour even if it was a successful tour but maybe they didn't get the right sizes and t-shirts they have bad designs who knows but on e-commerce you can pre-order everything. So if if you have a dud, you could just cancel that and not need not be required to sit on 200 designs that you can't sell. Yeah, so that's the thing. I actually just did a podcast with uh, Brendan from Counterparts where we went deep into like ordering merch sizes, which I thought was a really interesting conversation. I don't know if anybody else will care, but that's the kind of stuff I'm into. And like he was talking about how they went on this European tour and essentially they thought they were going to sell a bunch of merch in like continental Europe and they didn't. And then they thought that they were not going to sell much in the UK and they did, and they were sort of unprepared because they didn't, hadn't ordered enough and all that shit and ended up being a fiasco. And the reason I point that out is because I think people have the idea that, you know, buying merch from a band on tour is a, like the best way to support them and B that that's where bands make all their money. And, I think it's not quite that simple. I mean, right. That's definitely an oversimplification. But yeah, you know, I would never fault anybody for wanting to support a band. No, no, it's not a it's not a bad thing by any means. It's just like bands aren't printing money on tour, I guess, is my point. I mean, maybe some of them do sometimes, but a lot of them don't. Right. It's just one kind of spoke in a much larger wheel. But yeah, you know, if somebody prefers to buy uh, merchandise in person, great, that's Awesome. And you are supporting the band in many ways beyond just the band making a little bit of profit. You wearing that T-shirt lets other people know about that band's existence. And that goes back to being a cool T-shirt to wear, which is, you know, being a cool brand is so important for a band. And, you know, we've we've experienced that with several bands that just aren't that big, but <laughs> that they sell a lot of t-shirts like the defend pop punk shirt. Right. Right. Everybody was wearing it, you know, kind of within the warp tour world. Like, you know, my mom would have no idea what that means. Right. I mean, the Ramones is the ultimate example of that, right? Right. There you go. Thank you. Touring is not the big moneymaker. Everybody thinks it is. It's a thing that could be good, but it's a, a lot of times it's a gamble. If you want to buy that t-shirt, excellent. No, I will never discourage anybody from buying a shirt you know on tour but it's very tough like if some you know you said your buddy had that european tour it cost them thousands just to ship those t-shirts over to another country and they probably have to pay taxes and shit yeah and you know most bands are not rolling with international merchandise manufacturers with warehouses all around the world right you know you've got like one warehouse in like North Hollywood somewhere <laughs> and and that's it. Um, you know, there's and you know, obviously like if you're Metallica or Lady Gaga or something, yeah, you know, you've got a 
warehouses in Germany and in Japan and Australia and everywhere. But most bands are not like that. Right. They, they have to take those boxes with them and pay however much it costs to put them on a flight and however much it costs to transport them to the venue. And then, yeah, they have to pay those taxes and taxes really add up on soft merch. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they do. And I actually didn't think about that until now because there's, you know, all these import taxes that if you want to bring a box of shit across the border to sell it, they're going to charge you for that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I guess the moral of the story is when people say, you know, $25 for a T-shirt. Well, I mean, you know, that's a not so bad concern. The band will probably make, you know, three to five dollars yeah. off of that. I mean, it, that is a lot of money for a T-shirt, but there's to your point, there's a lot of cost in there and there's a reason for it. What about when bands, say a smaller band plays one of these huge European festivals like Vakken or whatever? Uh, I'm sure when Black Label plays those, that's that's a good payday for them. How about the smaller bands? Are those, is that a good payday for them as well? Or are they doing it just to get exposure? Or how does that work? I mean, I don't know. There's a... I guess that depends on how your booking agent negotiates it. With these festivals, you're usually paid kind of based on how many tickets they think you bring in. But you can't, if you're a band that's just starting out or just starting to catch some hype, you can't put a price on playing Download Festival Mm -hmm. for 100,000 people or Hellfest. Like, that's how you break bands. And I mean, you know, you look at things like uh, in the United States, like, Rock on the Range and uh, Warp Tour and Mayhem, like, they broke all these bands that like five finger death punch was a side stage band and now they're a a massive international headliner you know like it works it shouldn't be thinking just about the payday when you're starting out or the guarantee when you're starting out is very short-sighted there is an element of this is good exposure this is us playing to people that are engaged that could potentially become fans and I mean, and I, I love those European festivals. I think those are some of the coolest live entertainment things happening in the entire world. Yeah, no, I was just curious because I know there's lots of bands, especially like, you know, 90s bands whose entire, you know, livelihood is touring Europe. Like Madball, for example, I'm sure makes all their money in Europe. Yeah, I mean, hey, look, if they, if they can do it, cool. Like Europe is just, uh, they have a different culture, especially when it comes to rock music than the United States. Um, there's a lot of bands that just are not very popular in the United yeah. States, but they're huge in Japan and, you know, countries in Europe and Asia. Um, I think Ignite is like the perfect example of that. Or, or Zebrahead. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, You know, like, yeah, these are like actual mainstream bands in other countries. But in the United States, it's, you know, only people that are really into like punk and hardcore know of their existence. Well, I can't paint Europe with such a with such big, broad strokes. But, yeah, you know, we're talking about like UK, Germany, Japan. The these countries just have a different culture when it comes to rock music. And yeah, like they may get really stoked on these 80s bands and 90s bands that people in the United States may not care about too much anymore. And yeah, so that's where they focus their touring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. 
Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Now, in regards to booking agents, how do they get paid? Uh, they get paid based on a, a percentage of the shows that they book or whatever. Like if they, if they book a tour where you're making, you know, $2,500 a night, they get a percentage of that guarantee. And that's to incentivize them to negotiate for the highest possible guarantee. Correct. However, a book, a good booking agent, and I'm I'm fortunate enough to work with one of the best booking agents in rock music. Uh, doesn't always just look at the guarantee; they look at things like exposure and potential to grow your future guarantees. Like, yeah, you know, maybe you're playing for a little bit less than your ticket value for this show or for this tour, but that means you can make you know have. increase next tour because you're proving your value to a higher on a higher level and you'll be able to go into bigger venues a good booking agent is always very good at math and good at i don't want to say gambling but maybe risk management or figure figuring out the potential of taking a risk in the form of maybe a pay cut or doing some underplays Right. And there's no, you know, that's not something you can put into a spreadsheet. That's a judgment call based on their experience and knowing the artist and all that stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I've had great booking agents in the past say, hey, you know, we know you can play this big venue, but you won't sell it out. Maybe let's scale it back to, you know, maybe 500 people fewer in this venue, but you're going to have a quick sellout and it's going to create a bigger demand. So next cycle, next tour cycle you can go in and play a much bigger venue and ask for much more money, but maybe on the same ticket price. Yeah, that's another thing that Brendan was talking about from Counterparts. I think it was their most recent tour. They sold the same amount of tickets as they usually do, 
but it was in larger rooms, and so it looked worse. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, this the idea of perception mattering is very real. Like, let's say you play to 500 people. That's really good for most bands. But if you're playing to 500 people in a 2,000 cap room, that's really bad. And the reviews are going to come back bad. And the audience that's there is going to think, wow, nobody gives a shit about this band. But if you're playing to 500 people in a 500 cap room, it's sold out. It's awesome. It It looks cool. The footage looks great. Everyone's packed in, you know, and you know, you're not ripping off promoters. Um, and yeah, you know, you're, you're playing at the level that you're at. I should rewind a little bit. A lot of times a booking agent, there's certain booking agents that will put bands into much bigger rooms than they should be. And that could happen for a variety of reasons, but it usually doesn't end well for the band. And it, it could be just, again, a calculated risk that just didn't work out that time. Right. But, you know, like when these things happen, the promoters usually have an option of a rate reduction, which is really horrible when that happens. What does that mean? It means they cut your pay. (laughs) So they're like, you sold 20% of this place, so you're going to get 20% of your guarantee or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, I mean, there's been full tours canceled because, you know, maybe the band booked an amphitheater tour when they're really a theater band. Right. You know, it's hard to say, but it happens. And you really when you consistently screw up like that, you really damage your reputation and you're standing with these promoters. And when I say promoter, I don't necessarily always mean like the local promoter, although they are very important as well. But you could mess up your reputation with like Live Nation and AG that own like every venue in the world. That's bad. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's a, and, and I'm not saying you should go and like rip off local promoters either. Um, you know, these people are struggling and typically do a very good job on a very small margin. As a band, the promoters should be your best friends because they're the ones that put on your show. Tell us what promoters do and what kind of risk they're taking on. <laughs> I mean, realistically, they take on all the risk, I mean, maybe second only to the band, but they're usually in charge of a venue. Um, and, you know, that role takes a million different titles. So let's say it's like Dan Surf Productions and you promote shows at Dan's Hole in the Wall in North Hollywood. Exactly. And so I would send out an offer to, you know, uh, I want Impedestalment to play. <laughs> okay. An offer for $1. Right. But so I would send that offer over to the booking agent or, you know, whoever. And if they accept it, we would, you know, get that contract signed and then the band comes in place and I would be responsible for paying them that guarantee. Whether there's 10 people that show up or 10,000 people show up, I'm responsible to pay them that amount of money. And so, you know, in short, that's what a promoter does. They're, They're the person that buys the talent and puts on the actual show. Do they work for the venue? Are they their own independent company? How does that work? I mean, that varies. I mean, there's some promoters that own the venue, and that's both like big corporations like Live Nation or even independent people. Sometimes it's an independent contractor that the venue hires. Sometimes it's a venue employee. It varies, and a lot of venues have multiple different people doing different things. Like, you know, there's a couple venues in LA where there's it's corporate owned, but then they have a specific person booking like hip hop or reggaeton nights or, you know, one person books a ska night. <laughs> Cause that promoter has to be able to assess. I mean, they, they're really in the risk management business. They have to assess like the likelihood that this artist is going to draw enough to justify what we're paying them. Correct. And then it's not just what the money that the promoter puts up. 
they need to justify the venue costs because you have security staff, you have parking staff, you have bartenders and servers, and they need to be able to make money. Like for a lot of these bands, you need to be able to justify, like if you're going to overpay them to play, you need to justify to the venue, we're going to make it up in alcohol sales. We're going to make it up in some other area to where they're worth this money. I remember seeing, I saw Forever the Sickest Kids like 10 years ago or whatever. Actually, no, it was more than that. It was like 2008 or 2009. And the venue was packed, but there was literally two people at the bar because, you know, their fans are 14. And I and I, I was kind of thinking about that, like, from the perspective of the venue, like, did they know that that was going to be the situation? Because they probably, you know, compared to Megadeth, where, you know, the line for the bar is going to be wrapping around the building all night long, that probably makes a big difference in their financial upside. Absolutely. It's weird. I, I've never worked for a venue, so I don't know exactly how they handle those shows where there's no alcohol sales. But I mean, you know, there's bands that do. If you look at Chain Reaction or kind of the, the legendary right. Chain Reaction, they don't serve alcohol. I mean, I think maybe they sell like sodas and pretzels, but it's an all ages club and they don't have that extra overhead of needing to pay bartenders and dishwashers and things like that. So, you know, there's places that make it work, but that's probably a question better served for a a venue manager or promoter. (laughs) Right. Well, it's just interesting to me how complex these financial systems actually are when you think about how many people are involved and how many factors matter. The factors for financial success can be so varied and depend on who you are in the chain. You know, from the band's perspective, it doesn't really matter how much alcohol they sell, but it matters a lot to the venue, which means it matters to the promoter, which means it ultimately kind of does sort of matter to the band. Yeah, it's all a partnership. It's not it's not like band versus venue versus promoter versus booking agent. You're all a team. You're all in it together and you help lift each other up. The promoter brings the band in. The band brings in the audience and then the venue gives them stuff to buy in the form of, you know, alcohol and food or whatever. Oh, I'm sorry. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I believe that is why bands pay merch rate. And for those that don't know, merch rate is just a percentage of your merchandise sales goes to the venue like a tax. And if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. So don't kill me if I'm wrong. I think it's to make up for loss in alcohol sales. Oh, because they're buying a shirt instead of drinks? I believe so. I could be wrong, but I think as best as I can remember, that was the argument in favor of merch rate. Got it. Well, speaking of merch, let's talk about merch companies, because if you do a Google search for band name merch, you'll find like three or four different merch stores selling this stuff sometimes. What's what's the deal with that? Why would a band have relationships with so many different merch stores? Ooh, good question. Like the bands I work with in particular, we have a merchandising relationship with one merchandiser, period. So we have one merch company doing merch for everything from, you know, international e-commerce and worldwide e-commerce to retail stores to tour merch, whatever. Why can I buy an Amir shirt from Empiricon and Cold Cuts merch and All In merch? I'm making it up. I don't know if that's true, but why, why is that? Well, okay, so things like something like Empiricon is international. So there's a lot of merch companies that just operate in the United States. Like they're not going back to it's expensive to drop ship merch, you know, to another country or another continent. You may need to find that European merchandise manufacturer to sell your t-shirts in Germany and to make sure you have t-shirts to sell on tour in Europe. And, you know, Emure is a you know, international headlining act. So they're going to need representation 
as far as they can get it. Because, you know, they have fans in Germany and in France and Australia and Indonesia, any country you can name, there's going to be a demand for you know their merchandise. And it sucks for that kid in France to have to pay $18 shipping on a $14 shirt. Exactly. Um, so that's one reason financially it may be more lucrative to license out your designs to any number of merchandise companies. Some bands, you know, if, you're, if we're talking about a bigger band, like let's say Periphery, because I'm just thinking about your previous video, sure. they may own the designs and, you know, let's say license out one design to a merch company to only work with Hot Topic. License out another design to only service, you know, uh, digital retailers in, I don't know, India or whatever. Sure. And, you know, do it like that. That makes it far more complicated. But if you're as well organized as a band like Periphery, it could be quite lucrative. Let's say that I have a relationship with the buyer at Hot Topic. I could go to, you know, Periphery or some other band and say, hey, I know you've been trying to get your stuff into Hot Topic and it, and it hasn't worked out. I've got a guy, I can make it happen, and we'll strike a, a deal just for this particular retailer. Yeah, and that's exactly, that's what a merch company does, and then they'll take their royalty for, you know, making it happen, and that's that. No, I mean, I wouldn't recommend somebody has, you know, too many merch companies. I think it's a much better relationship to be with one, and, you know, if they need to hire a consultant to get to get a t-shirt into like a you know, hot topic or target or whatever, then so be it, that's on them. But uh, in my experience, too many cooks in the kitchen just leads to trouble. And it, I, of course, there's some bands that can just manage that better than others, but it becomes increasingly diffi difficult. And if you're spending, you know, 40, 50 hours a week just managing a merch inventory and who owns what license, yeah. you're not gonna have any time to do the actual band music stuff that is the reason people buy your t-shirt. I always forget about that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, never forget that. Without without the song, without the personality, the t-shirt doesn't exist. There's no t-shirt, there's no tour. That's right. You do need songs. So with merch, who pays for that? Like if we strike a deal and we decide that we're going to do an initial run of my band, how does that work? In most cases, the band would pay for it. So there's a couple options, you know, they can try to do some sort of print on demand deal, or if they need to hold on to inventory, like if they're going on tour, most print companies will have a minimum and these minimums are high. We're talking about like 150, 200 t-shirt minimum per design. It really adds up. And then there's other cases where if you're, you know, a bigger band that's or sell a lot of merchandise, you may just sign a deal with a merch company where, where they will advance you. They'll say, you know, here's X amount of dollars uh, for you to keep. And then any money made on merch for the next year is ours. And we'll take care of all the costs associated with printing, sending, or just distribution, whatever, marketing. We'll take care of it. So it's almost like a publishing deal. Yeah, or like a record deal. Yeah. So I'll pay you 50 grand to just have your merch business for the next year or whatever the number is. I mean, and that doesn't always happen, but for bigger bands, that's usually the case. It's really tough to nail it down. And then, yeah, there's those bands that will buy a screen printer and just make it themselves and, you know, not worry about anyone else. And specifically, like, punk and hardcore bands, they're known for this. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the thing that they do. And in those cases, you know, that $25 t-shirt for a local hardcore band, 
they're probably making $20 off of it. So good for them. But then they also have to mail it out, which is the reason why it takes you three months to get your shirt. I mean, right. But that, you know, that's the positive of going with a merch company is you don't need to worry about customer service. You don't need to worry about a fraud department because they have one. And believe me, fraud happens all the effing time. Somebody will steal somebody's credit card, run up a bunch of charges for whatever they want, and then, you know, leave the victim hanging. Right. But yeah, you know, if you have someone, if you have a business handling customer service, you don't need to worry about that. Which could ruin you if you're a small band and somebody, you know, commits a thousand dollars of fraud and and you get a chargeback for that. That could really hurt your business. Absolutely. There's all sorts of benefits of going with one merch company or going with multiple or starting your own or, you know, just doing print on demand. It really depends on the band. <laughs> Got it. But when a band does that initial run of merch, they are fronting the money for that. And then the merch company essentially handles the storefront and fulfillment and customer service part of it. I would, I mean, again, that depends. I would think with most bands that are just starting out, they'll probably just go to a printing company and order, you know, 200 t-shirts or whatever their minimum is of one design and then sell it themselves on Bandcamp. Or on tour, I think once you start getting into, you know, hiring like the Empiricons and merch connections of the world to, you know, run your e-commerce store, handle your tour merch, you're probably in a band that's already seen some level of success, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. Last thing, and I know this is super complicated and there's probably a lot that, you know, there's a lot more detail here that we can't get into, but let's talk about like record sales and streaming income. So like I talked about in the video I did earlier, or I guess yesterday, roughly speaking, Saliva looks like they made about 850 grand off of Spotify. 200 million streams of just their top five singles. It's like 205 or something. So if you assume a $4,000 per million streams, which from what I can tell is kind of roughly accurate, where does that $850,000 go? And I know, I know, and I'm not speaking specifically in the case of Saliva because I know that you don't know their business, but in general, a band that's able to pull in, let's say, 200 million streams or even a million, typically has a publisher that they work with. They have a record label or at least somebody handling that song and those masters and the distribution for it. You're going to have an attorney that negotiated your deal. And in a lot of cases, the attorney takes a percentage of what the band makes because you have them on retainer. I, I know for the listeners it may sound weird, but when you're a band that's pulling in that kind of streams and you're selling a good amount of merch and you're consistently touring, you're going to run into a lot of legal issues. So it's much cheaper to have uh, an attorney representing you on retainer than it is to pay you know seven hundred dollars each time you need to talk to them. Which is really how much it is. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's not hyperbole. It's very expensive. So most even like mid level or lower to mid level bands have an attorney on retainer and you sign a lot of contracts right after the attorney you have the business manager and for those that don't know that's more like an accountant and a financial planner for the band they also typically take a percentage of everything that comes in but they're the ones that manage your money they pay your taxes and really make sure you're not whatever overdrafting the account or going to zero and they make sure that people pay you like when Sound Exchange owes you money, they're the ones that go after them and get it. And they get what? Something like two to five percent or something like that? Yeah, it's, it's not a lot, but they do a lot of work. But if they have 20 clients. Yeah. yeah. So but but again, it's a it's a financial advisor. So I don't, I don't know what value 
everybody would put on not getting audited by the IRS, but I put a lot of value Quite high. in Yeah. 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 Like I, I, I don't want to mess with them. I don't know a band that would ever want to get be on the wrong side of a IRS letter. Yeah. You don't want that. Yeah. So, you know, after them, you've got management, you've got label, you know, there's songwriters or people that contributed <laughs> to it, which kind of ties back to publishers. But there's a lot of hands that it passes through. But still, you know, any money from streaming is still good. And each song is going to differ, not just band, but each song or parts of the song, it's going to be different. Because it all depends on the splits with the writers and producer and all that other stuff. But I guess the the fundamental thing that I'm curious about, and I know it's very hard to generalize, but I'm going to force you to anyway, how much of that streaming revenue is going to end up in the hands of a band that is, say, the average band on Hopeless or Fearless or something like that? Well, if they have a good manager and a good attorney, probably the lion's share. Okay. It's not accurate to say that all that money just goes to the label. No. I mean, in some cases it does, um, but it depends on the contract and how much the label invested into you. It's really dependent on a lot of things, but it's negotiable. (laughs) What sort of things would you negotiate? Well, definitely you'd want to negotiate publishing with a record label. You would want to negotiate how much you're borrowing from them. Uh, You know, there's been record labels in the past that really encouraged bands to borrow as much as they could from the label so they will never recoup. And again, you know, not naming names, but it's kind of a well-known, well-talked-about story. Yeah. And, you know, in that sense, the band would never receive any of their publishing, not just sync or performance but they would never even get their mechanicals which is a royalty the record label pays anytime they print a cd or a song of yours i wish i can answer with better specifics but publishing has never been you know my area of expertise and it's very 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 complicated yeah there's there's specialized attorneys that you know have law degrees just in music music publishing so that, that might be a better question for an attorney but the best answer i can give is It depends. If you've got like a really awesome attorney that can get you a great deal, then you may be keeping the lion's share, assuming you're not, you know, 200 grand in debt to a record label because you decided to buy onto a tour you shouldn't have been on. Got it. So a lot of this hinges on recouping, which is paying the label back for the loan that they gave you to produce and market the album and anything else that, you know, tour support or anything else. Yeah. I mean, look, it's... A band is just like any other business. Like, I know that term gets thrown around a lot, like, you know, treat your band like a business, and people don't really know what it means. I mean, it means you need to get revenue from different sources, and when you have debt, you need to pay that debt. Otherwise, you know, if you can't pay it, you're at risk of going bankrupt. And yeah, like, bands go bankrupt. They overextend themselves, they overleverage themselves, they borrow too much, and what, they'll never be able to pay a record label back. And frankly, like, ethically, you don't want to be in that position where you owe, you know, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars to a record label that's been good to you and put out your music. And ultimately, that's kind of how three sixty deals came to be because bands had a very difficult time recouping, and record labels kind of had this decision to make of either they go bust or they try to pull in different revenue streams, like taking a piece of a band's touring. Right which was an unpopular decision. But as you said, you know, there is another side of it where the label kind of doesn't have too much of a choice. Right. And I mean, you know, there's always going to be these exceptions. Like, again, going back to Periphery, where they are their own label, it's self-funded, which is awesome. And then if they want, they can license out 
their music to a record label for distribution and have a more lucrative deal. But, you know, like I wish more bands can act like Periphery, but not everyone's capable of doing it. It takes a lot of organization and a lot of creative thinking to be able to do this. Uh, And a lot of dedication didn't happen overnight. So, you know, if you're in an old school record deal, yeah, you know, you need to worry about recouping. Well, I guess the reason why I ask is because, you know, I get so many comments from people saying that artists don't make anything from streaming, which I'm sure is true in some cases. But then on the other hand, I know plenty of people that get checks for, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month, either from a small, you know, band that they're in or a band they were in 10 years ago that put something out on Trustkill or something like that, you know, and they're still getting 200 bucks a month or whatever from that, which I would say is that's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. I, You know, I always found it strange that fans worry about how a band is getting paid. Maybe it's more of a newer thing. It just it like when I was a teenager and a young adult, it never really occurred to me. I listened to a band. If I liked it, I would go and buy the CD or go to the show or whatever. And however that money was distributed, I didn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it's it, it's very weird. And like, you know, a band's not going to go on Instagram and, you know, break down their PL sheet and, you know, where the money's going to yeah. anybody that wants, that wants to look. It's kind of weird, I think. Well, for one, because not very many bands actually know. <laughs> I mean, sure, but let, let's pretend you're in a band that knows. Yeah. Let's say Impedestalment knows where their money is coming and going. I think that's just very bizarre that people worry about, oh, the record label's taking a cut. Yeah, the record label's the reason the album is out. Well, you know, I've I've thought about this, and I think it's one of these cases where it's a double-edged sword. Anytime you are, I mean, bands are essentially influencers that just happen to make music. Anytime you're an influencer, some sort of public figure, the public cares about everything you do. And that's works. That's a double edged sword. Like if they didn't care about you, then like you you might say, why do you care about how this band gets paid? Well, because you care about the band in general. That's the reason why you show up to the show and why you buy their album or their merch or whatever, which I think we would all agree is a good thing. On the other hand, it's also why they care about stuff that to me seems kind of odd, like legal disputes with their record label. And it's it seems like they always hate the labels. So I, I think it's like you just can't have one without the other, that they wouldn't care about the positive stuff and the things we want them to care about without also caring about the things that maybe seem less logical. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's easy to get mad at a record label for one debatably bad thing they did, but then forget about the 200 releases they had prior right. where... You know, they they took a band from being a garage band to being a warp tour headliner and got their CDs into Best Buy when you're an obscure punk band. And <laughs> whatever, like, like I'm just throwing throwing that out. Like you get the white caps CD into Best Buy, especially like in punk man. You know, I know a lot of people want to talk shit about Epitaph Records, but wow, they did some amazing things for bands that you would have never expected. U.S. bombs or whatever. Yeah, like I would have never thought I would find a total chaos CD in Best Buy, but it happened. It totally did. Yeah. It's easy to just point fingers and say, hey, that's the bad guy. But most of these record labels, they're staffed by people like you and I. The other thing I I think is interesting, I'd be curious to know if you have heard about this. There's a common narrative that the label forced the band to do X or Y. And I'm sure that that's happened, but I've never heard of it happening to anybody that I know. And in general, my experience is 
good fucking luck getting a like forcing a band to do anything they don't want to do no matter how much money is involved or how much it would be in their financial interest like they're just not going to fucking do it to an extent yeah i guess it depends on what they're being forced to do like you're not going to get them to put out an album they don't like it's just not going to fucking happen uh, yeah I, I would, uh, so i would say in my experience that's the case that's not going to happen i'm sure it has happened but Broadly speaking, like I'm not going to go, hey, Dan, you're going to have to put out a, uh, you know, a butt rock album in February. That's the way it is. You're just going to be like, no. Right. And I think people don't really understand what it is a record label does or how they operate. But, you know, like Brian Slagle from Metal Blades not sitting in the studio with Goat Whore. Right. Telling them, oh, the song needs to sound like this. You need to do this, this, and this. He will come by the studio and listen to a Cannibal Corpse mix. Sure. But he's not telling them, like, start over. This song sucks. He's just going to go there and, like, make sure everyone's, you know, doing their job. Right. Now, there is a point where if a song really does suck and it's going to hurt a band's career, if you have a good A&R and somebody you really trust, they may step in and say, this is pretty bad. Yeah, it depends on the relationship. But I can think of a few examples where it's happened and they were correct or where it should have happened. It didn't. And it really tarnished, you know, that album or what a band was doing. But that's a little different than forcing a band to change their style. Yeah. Nobody's forced to do anything. A lot of times if a band changes their styles because that's the the music they want to play. Right. And going back to, you know, punk in the 90s, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, Offspring sold out or whatever. It's like, dude, they're not going to write the same songs at 40 years old that they were at 20 years old. I would hope not. But, you know, people expect that. And that wasn't, you know, Brett Gerwitz or whoever was the C or uh, when they were at Sony, whoever came in. It wasn't like a record label executives. That's the music they wanted to write. And Hey, you know, if a band changes to be more radio friendly, maybe they just want to be more radio friendly. Yeah. I don't know. I've like I've I've never experienced a record label executive come in and tell any of my bands they need to do something. And that's not your job either. No, I mean I would guide them. I would give them my advice. More specifically, I would create a plan and submit it to them for approval for their opinion. Because you work for them. This is an important thing for people to understand. Yeah, I work, I work for the band. My goal is to do what's best for the band. They're the boss. Right. However, they, they hire management to help guide them and to negotiate these deals and to do things like when I'm in charge of digital strategy and I need to come up with the best marketing plans I can digitally and then I submit it to them for approval. And there's going to be some things that they may not like that I think is really important and you know we would discuss it. But no, I'm not forcing anybody to do anything. Your record label executive is not forcing anybody to do anything. Nobody's forcing a band to do whatever they want because a band could just say, fuck it, we're breaking up. (laughs) Right. Like, I don't know. Did you see when, uh, like, I don't know, it was about a year ago when Lil Uzi Vert was playing that card? (laughs) No, what happened? I don't know exactly what was happening behind the scenes, but he was not getting along with his label and he was like, okay, I retire. I'm never making music again. Oh, yeah. There, I mean, there you go. And and he didn't really mean it, but he was just like, I'll go there. Yeah. And and, and he totally can. You know, there's record labels not going to force you into the studio to record. Uh, you know, like you, you hear these stories about, you know, gangster music industry executives doing that. But that's not that's not reality. That's something you see on The Sopranos. <laughs> right. That's not a thing that happens. You know, Andy just wants some time to uh, rest after the tour, and you dragged him in there by the scruff of his neck, put a gun to his head, and shoved that mic in his face. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like 
I always thought that was weird when somebody would say the record label forced them to do something or whoever forced a musician to do it, something, do their people. The thing I would want to communicate to everyone and tell me whether you agree with this or not is, you know, the label and management and, you know, the merch company and like everybody is on the same team and they're working with these bands because they like them and they want them to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, people butt heads because that just happens in life and in business. But like, it's not an adversarial relationship between the band and all these other people they work with. They're friends. Exactly. They are friends. And and I don't just mean like industry coworkers. Like we are actual friends. But the, some of my best friends are other managers and people that work at record labels and people that you meet through work. And the same thing with bands. Like it's not. I, I've never had a musician butt heads with the record label executive, those people get invited to the weddings. It's right. like, we're all buds. We do what's best for the band. The band gets it. The record label gets it. And just like anything else, it's a little bit of give and take. And the reason you work with them is because you trust their judgment. So sometimes you need to trust, like I would need to trust that a publicist knows more about getting on the cover of alternative press than maybe I would. And, you know, if they say, Hey, you know, we should do a photo shoot with this photographer because they're, Pictures look good on magazine covers. I may need to trust their judgment based on their experience and their success. There's sort of this idea, I think, that's unstated, but there that, you know, everyone's trying to screw the band. And I just don't think that's the way it is. No, not at all. Uh, Again, at least not in my experience. Has it happened? Yes, of course. Right. I could be fortunate to only work with honest people. You could be fortunate to only, you know, work with honest people and know honest people. But I would think that these dishonest, like scammers are the, you know, very few and far between. Most people in the music industry that I've worked with are people just like me. They love music. They really don't get, uh, don't get too aggro about anything. They're just stoked to be part of something that they love. Well, that sounds like a good note to end it on to me. I appreciate you coming on and uh, dropping all this knowledge for everybody. I think everyone's going to, hopefully you had your notepad out. If you didn't, I should have said this at the beginning. If you're listening to this now and you didn't have a notepad out at the beginning, rewind to the beginning, get your pen and paper out and take notes because you just unpacked a lot of stuff for people that I get asked about a lot. So thank you. Thanks for having me. This is great. Anything, uh, any parting words of wisdom or anything you want to plug before I let you go? Yeah, subscribe to the Punk Rock NBA channel on YouTube. I learned a lot of shit from Finn. (laughs) Please like, share, and subscribe. (laughs) See ya. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. What's up, everyone? This is Jay Reason, and I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Lord Ezek, interview artists from the hardcore punk, metal, hip-hop scenes, and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, 
L.A. street photographer Estevan Oriol, Jimmy G. from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law, and pro wrestler Vampiro, to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions, lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun. Hey, this is Chris Santos, host of Delirious Nomads, the Blacklight Media Podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Delirious Nomads is a podcast about all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports. And me being a chef and all, we'll be riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.